morning, everyone at First Baptist. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today's guest speaker, Dr. Gary Hollingsworth. In the past, he's been on staff of our North American Mission Board in the area of evangelism and church planning, and he's also been a pastor of several local churches, most recently Emmanuel Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. But this past January, he was unanimously elected as the new executive director for our South Carolina Baptist Convention. We needed a man with vision who had experience in church planning and a heart for evangelism, and that's what we have in Brother Gary. And I can tell you, our convention staff is excited. Pastors across South Carolina are excited, and I'm really thankful that he's able to preach for us today. Would you join me in welcoming to the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Brother Gary Hollingsworth. Well, thank you so very much. It is a joy and a delight and a pleasure to be here along with my wife, Gwen, who's accompanying me today. And we are so thrilled to be South Carolinians and to be a part of our South Carolina Baptist family. And I want to thank you and particularly your your pastor and all of your pastoral staff for hosting one of the six listening sessions that I had in those first 30 days or so, and so I've already been introduced uh, to the ministry here at First Baptist Rock Hill, and uh, I regret that your pastor is away so, because I would have loved to have connected with him, but I'm very grateful that he is also on some days of vacation and want to thank uh, your other Steves on staff. What, you have to be named Steve to get on staff around here. I'm just kind of figuring that out. Jamie, I don't know how you made it, but anyway... Uh, I do want to thank not only your pastor, but all of your, your wonderful staff and for their hospitality this morning. And again, thank you for your participation in uh, kingdom work uh, through our South Carolina Baptist State Convention. I had no earthly idea that God was going to call me away from a wonderful church in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, where we served for a little over uh, eight years. Thought we would just retire and, and, and just die there. It was such a wonderful fellowship, but God had other plans. And uh, as your pastor just reflected uh, back in January, the Lord opened this door, and here we are. And we're so thrilled to be a part of our South Carolina Baptist family. Let me ask you to go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. And while you're finding that passage here in just a moment, uh, we're going to really look more in story form this morning at this passage of Scripture rather than read the entire chapter. Uh, it, it's a very powerful chapter, and we're going to be talking this morning about having a big faith for a big vision. And uh, that is the real essence of this story, a big faith for a big vision. Uh, but first let me also say thank you to this choir, this Living Cross Choir. truly blessed my heart this morning. And, uh, you know, our, our Southern Baptist family it may be large and expansive when you think about reaching across the globe uh, to Birmingham, England. By the way, I, you notice Jamie was calling it Birmingham. Well, I'm from Alabama. We call it Birmingham in Alabama. But anyway, uh, whether it's in England or Jamaica or around the world, we know that our, our work is, is scattered far and wide. And yet our, our, our Southern Baptist family is actually quite small because we actually have a personal contact relationship and friendship with someone who's saying in the Living Cross Choir. For so those of you who are the Living Cross, if the name Kay and Bill Wilson happen to mean anything to you, I was their pastor in Little Rock. And just this morning, uh, Gwen, my wife, was already texting Kay and letting her know that we were here at their home church when they lived here in Rock Hill. But we love the Wilsons. They are such dear friends of ours as well. So like I said, we're not near as large and as big as we think they, we are because our family of faith truly does come together. So again, thank you for your part in being 
uh, a part of the kingdom of, of God and the family of faith called South Carolina Baptist. Towards the end of this message, I'm going to share just a few little details of some things that God has laid upon my heart in coming now as your director. I really, quite frankly, would prefer a different title than executive director or treasurer. That sounds so ominous and formal. I really want to just come this morning as your state missionary. I believe that we are a missionary board and we need to act and function like missionaries in that regard. And so we'll talk a little bit more about how, how you're a part of that partnership of doing far, far, far more together, cooperatively, collectively, and in partnership than we can ever do on our own or just even as one congregation. And so uh, I do thank you in advance, though, for the ways that you're involved in our South Carolina Convention and our larger Southern Baptist Convention family as well. Well, before we get into this story this morning, uh, let me just remind you that the Bible, of course, we know is filled with stories uh, where there was a big faith that accompanied a big vision. I mean, when you think about Abraham, Abram at the time, leaving his home, going somewhere by faith, he didn't know where he was going, he didn't know what he was being called to do, he just knew that God had called. And so he stepped out on faith, and of course we know the rest of that story because God was working a huge vision which ultimately would become the nation of Israel. And God is certainly not finished with his people yet. It was a big faith that led to a big vision. I think of Moses, how God called him by faith to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. We also know that story. I, I think of a, of a Joshua, again, who led the charge based upon faith to go out along with Caleb. And uh, while the, the majority report was negative, the minority report was a report of faith. God is in this. We can do this. I, I could go on and on this morning about great stories in the Word of God about how vision was accompanied by faith. And so today I want us to think for just a few moments about, about big faith for a big vision. You know, God still calls us today. Just like he called an Abram, just like he called a Moses or a, Jer- a Joshua or a Nehemiah or others that we could look at today, God continues to call his people to be people of faith, and that faith is to be accompanied by a big vision. And such is the story, and such is the case here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now let me remind you quickly a little bit about the chapters around chapter 14. Uh, this, of course, is a story that finds itself in the middle of some of the uh, most disappointing moments in the life of King Saul. You'll remember his story. You see, King Saul, he had a son by the name of Jonathan. I like that because we have two boys and our oldest son, his name is also Jonathan. But Saul had not been, at least at this stage in his life, a great role model for his son or for the nation in that, uh, for that matter. You see, Saul was large on the outside, but had become small on the inside. That's one of the things that will always characterize someone who lacks faith and who lacks vision, is that they suddenly will become small on the inside. They begin to turn inwardly in their focus, or inward in their focus. Churches often can make that mistake when they begin to look inside, and they're more interested in taking care of their own needs and their own ministries and their own program 
they often, it means that there's a, a dying vision. And this is what had happened with Saul. If you were to read chapters 13, 14, and 15, you would find some of the fatal flaws in the life of Saul at this time in his life. We'll find that he had become impatient. You'll find that he had become filled with pride. You'd find that he was now being disobedient rather than obedient. And you'd also find that he was committing the sin of presumption. You see, presumption and faith are two different things. Faith is trusting God. Presumption is assuming that we know already in advance what God wants to do. And we step out presumptuously. And these were hallmarks and some of the fatal flaws in the life of King Saul at this particular time. Now, in chapter 14, our story for the day, we're going to find that Saul's son, Jonathan, decides to take matters into his own hands. And he, along with his armor bearer, step out in faith and really cast a very large vision for something that only God can do and thereby only God could get the credit for it. And that particular issue had to deal with, once again, those pesky Philistines. You know much about that story, I'm sure. You see, Saul and the nation of Israel had battled one of their prime enemies in the Philistines. And yet Saul, because his faith had been diminishing and his vision had been dying, now suddenly he is in a place of inactivity. And so we find really timeless truth number one for our consideration from this story. And then I'll read the first verse. Let me give you the truth first and then we'll see the verse that accompanies it. The timeless truth is simply this. Is in this particular instance we need to do what Jonathan did. He saw a need and did what needed to be done. See a need and then do what needs to be done. That's one of the characteristics of the beginning of a large faith that leads to a large vision. You just see something that needs to take place and you don't wait on someone else to do it. You just begin to, by faith, believe that God's calling you to be a part of that. Listen now to verse 1. The scripture here says, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. And I've always loved this last little line of verse 1. But he did not tell his father. Now, one commentator suggested that very likely Jonathan may have been a teenager at this point. Well, I could believe that. Having done 12 years of youth ministry, uh, maybe there was a reason that Jonathan didn't go tell his dad what he was about to do. Uh, have you seen that television ad? Uh, and it's, a, it's a, a father and a son, and every time they're doing something a little dangerous, you know, a little out on the edge, and he'll say, don't tell your mom, don't tell your mom, don't tell your mom. You remember that, that commercial? And then at the end, uh, the mom uh, is also doing something a little risky with the teenager and says, don't tell your dad. Well, I get that impression and that image here in this part of the story. You see, Jonathan decides that something needs to be done, and he steps out in faith believing that God was going to show up. You see, uh, the reality is that uh, in our lives as well, sometimes when we're prone to make a statement like this, somebody ought to do something about it and then fill in the blank. You ever been there? You know, you just you see something, and then we instantly might say something like that. Somebody 
ought to talk to that person. Somebody ought to share the gospel. Somebody ought to stop that injustice. And here is a great principle for all of us. Anytime we think that thought, have that thought that somebody ought to do something, that somebody is very likely you or me. In that moment, the very next thought that we should have is that we might be that somebody. That is a big faith that will accompany a big vision. In uh, the early 1990s, we served a church up in northern Virginia. I was pastor of First Baptist Church of Alexandria, Virginia. It was inside the beltway of Washington, D.C. And uh, I jokingly like to say that we were there for four years. I was there for one term and didn't run for re-election. But anyway, I, it, no, it was really a wonderful congregation. But uh, it, it's a challenging place to live, and it's a very challenging place. At that time, our, our boys were very young. But in that church, First Baptist Alexandria, was a man by the name of Arthur Morissette. You very likely have never heard his name, but you very likely have heard of his company. He was the founder of interstate van lines, and you can still see interstate van line trucks all over this country. Arthur was a native uh, Washingtonian and started literally delivering furniture back in the Depression uh, as he could find jobs and not just delivering furniture, but he had a truck and had really no other way to make a living and, and, and started very small, but that company over many years grew and grew and grew. So Arthur was in our church, and I remember visiting with Arthur one day at his interstate van line headquarters there in northern Virginia. And uh, I just wanted to pick his brain a little bit uh, in terms of leadership principles and in terms of, of, uh, of how God had really blessed his life in, uh, in so many ways and blessed his business. And, and so we were, we were walking, you know, we had been through the office area and met uh, many of the workers. It was a family-oriented business at that time and may very well still be. Arthur has now gone home to be with the Lord. But uh, I remember then he took, took me back into the, the warehouse area where they also stored furniture. And so as we were, as we were walking through that place, uh, uh, then there was a piece of furniture, and it wasn't in a box, but it had obviously been damaged. And now there were workers, you know, just everywhere back there in the warehouse. And as soon as Mr. Morissette walked by that piece of furniture, he stopped. And it was back in the days pre-cell phone, but he went over to a little office back in the warehouse area, and there was no one in there at that time because they were out, again, doing some work. But he instantly got on the phone, and he made a call back to the main office, and within just seconds, there were people out there. Mr. Morissette wanted to know the explanation of what had happened to that piece of furniture. And, and so... Uh, he took care of it, and within just a few moments, someone explained what had happened and that they were well on top of it. But as we now continued our tour when that was taken care of, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, I know you've come to talk to me about leadership. And he said, I probably have run this business uh, maybe a little differently than some. He said, I've never set a budget. We never set goals. He said, we just try to provide the very best service that we can to all of our customers. But he said something I've never forgotten, and I'm about to share it with you this morning. And here it was, and he modeled it in that moment. He said, never walk by a mistake. Never walk by a mistake. I've never forgotten that little leadership principle. And I've sought personally to try as best I can to apply that in little things in life and in big things in life. 
you're perhaps an, I'm an incessant trash picker upper. I want to report I didn't find any trash in your parking lot this morning. Okay, so somebody has already beat me to that job. But I want you to know that if I'm in a parking lot, and as a pastor, I never thought it, it was beneath me to pick up the trash in the parking lot. Rather than saying, somebody needs to come pick up this trash, what do you, you just pick it up. And you just take it to the garbage can nearest you. You see, it's in little things and it's in big things. But if we begin to model that when we see something that needs to be done, that we are the ones to do it, that is the first step like Jonathan and the armor bearer of having a faith big enough to do whatever task might need to be done at the moment. Well, let's press on because we now find a second timeless truth when we think about A faith big enough to lead to a big vision. And here is the principle. The principle here is that opportunities, often in our lives, opportunities are missed by being preoccupied with what? Ourself. Opportunities for faith and a big vision are often missed. Why? Because we're preoccupied with self. Look at verse 2 of the text. It says, now Saul, Jonathan's father, of course, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Now get the picture. Here are the Philistines bearing down once again upon the nation. Saul is not only the king in terms of the leader of the economy and of of politics, but he is also the commander-in-chief, as is our president, of the military forces. And here comes the, the enemy upon them. And what's Saul doing? He's sitting under a pomegranate tree, resting himself, supposedly, proposedly, and with 600 men at his side. And I think when I read that, and I I begin to think about the fact that I too often can miss moments of faith and moments to be a part of something big, a big vision. Why? Because I'm just taking care of myself. I'm concerned with myself. Here Saul sits for afternoon tea perhaps or pomegranate juice, whatever the case might have been, and he had become so self-centered that he had lost faith. You know, one of the ways that we'll often, and I personally try to guard against this in my own life as as best as possible, and it really helps to have a a great wife who holds me accountable in in these kinds of areas, but often when we begin to develop what I call an entitlement mentality, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Do you know people who suddenly begin to think that They've gotten to a place in their life or to a point in their journey where people just owe them something. Owe them maybe not necessarily money, but just owe them a certain amount of respect. Owe them a certain amount of, uh, uh, of, 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 of latitude, if, if you will. And that's what had happened here in the life of Saul. He had become self-centered. And I told you, read 13 and 15, the chapters. Read all three of those chapters And you'll just begin to see these fatal flaws that have begun to emerge. And it had now manifested itself in self-centeredness. Listen, we know that the Lord Jesus himself said, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve. 
And we who are the children of God, in the, in the house of God, in the church of God, regardless of our particular title, regardless of our particular role, whether we're the executive director of a state convention. And by the way, when, when I became, uh, when I, I took this position and God called me to this, the very first week on the job, the other 42 men around our, our nation who serve in this role in other states, we have a meeting once a year, an annual meeting. And there were three of us this year who were brand new, uh, the, uh, from Michigan, from New England, and from South Carolina. And so many of these men have been serving uh, as the state execs of these uh, conventions, some for 25 and 30 years. And, and there's some wonderful, great, godly men but for the new guys coming in, now, I've been in ministry 41 years. This is my 41st year of ministry. And uh, even though I've had 41 years of ministry, I've never done this ministry before. And so the entire week while we're meeting, they put us, the newbies, they, it, as a matter of fact, it's probably very close to hazing, and I'm not sure that uh, there weren't laws that were broken during that week. And, you know, it, it was humiliating. They, they dressed us, for example, since I was from South Carolina, I wore, and I'm going to make some of you happy here, okay, I had a Clemson Tiger. Uh, it was like a toboggan, but it's the one that has the, the sleeves that you can put your hands in. It's got the tail. You know what I'm talking about? So you've got the tiger tail with that. Now, we were meeting, by the way, uh, in Puerto Rico, and it was already very warm down there. And at first I thought this was going to be kind of a cool thing to go to Puerto Rico. I later found that's probably because they were running from the law. But anyway, so we're out there. So they put this hat on me. Then I had a T-shirt. And my T-shirt, the uh, others of you will appreciate this, it was a South Carolina Gamecock, uh, Gamecock. But all I can say for that T-shirt, it was an angry rooster. That's all I can, you know, the picture of that thing. Then I had to carry plastic golf clubs because they knew I liked to play a little golf. And I also had a little plastic bucket and, you know, children's sand pail for the beach. And I had to carry that with me all week long. And anytime, I mean, everywhere we went, uh, if, I, if I were caught without my outfit and, you know, all my, my, my golf clubs everything. And so I, I just got, this was a resort-type area in a nice hotel. And so I'd just be walking down the hall and you could see people kind of looking at you, you know, and... And I would just say, it's too long of a story. I don't have time to explain it. I'd keep walking. I'm reporting back to Gwen, and I'm sending her pictures. And her only comment was, are these grown men you're dealing with this week? And I said, well, I'm not sure about that. But you know why they do that? They wanted us to come in understanding that this position of leadership is a position of humility and service. They wanted to make sure that we didn't get... Our heads swelled with this executive director, treasurer title. And let me tell you what, they did a really good job because it was really humiliating. But, but I, I thought to myself, I'm glad they did that as a reminder because if not, I, I need to be reminded that I could miss some great opportunities of ministry and service if I'm so absorbed and consumed with self that... I'm more interested in how I look, how I feel, what it does for me versus being willing to get my hands dirty in kingdom work. I'm so grateful, First Baptist Rock Hill, to know that you are a mission-oriented church out there getting your hands dirty in doing real mission work. There is never a task so small if it is a task that's being done for the name of the kingdom and in Jesus' name, for the sake of the kingdom and in Jesus' name. Whether it's here in Rock Hill or in Birmingham, England or in Jamaica, it matters not. You see, we can't miss opportunities 
like Saul because we are consumed and absorbed with self. And yet he was. Now, let me give you one other verse. Skip down to verse 6. I told you we're just kind of moving through this story rather than reading the entire chapter. But in verse 6, we again kind of see the, the opposite now of Saul back again on Jonathan. And here's what Jonathan does. Jonathan then said to the young man who was carrying his armor, he said, hey, come on, let's go cross over the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps, just perhaps, the Lord will work for us. For the Lord, I love this line, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let me tell you about some of the great, one of the greatest revival movements that ever took place in this country was started literally by one man who had faith enough to trust God with a big vision that God wanted to do something to shake up this nation. And I don't know about you, but it'd be a whole other message that I could preach this morning. But do you believe that our nation needs revival? Boy, I do. Do you believe that we need another great spiritual awakening? Absolutely. And so rather than saying, well, wow, somebody ought to start praying for this nation, that somebody might ought to be me and you. Rather than saying that somebody ought to do something about what's happening in Washington or what's happening here, what's happening, that somebody might ought to be us. The man I'm talking about was named Jeremiah Lamphere 100 years before I was born. I was born in 1957. He lived in 1857. And in 1857, of all places in the southern tip of Manhattan, actually very near where the World Trade Centers were, where now the new World Trade Center is, uh, a layman, a layman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere had a vision and a passion and a burden for his community, for his co-workers, for his little area of the world. And so we called some folks together and said, hey, let's begin to pray every day at noon. The first day, he was the only one who showed up. Just one. But by the end of that week, about a dozen of his friends had come and joined him. Uh, you can read about the great prayer revival of 1857. And uh, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but suffice it to say that that before uh, that revival movement had kind of come to a, a bit of a close, reports say that over a million people all around the world were affected and touched in some way. Many were saved and baptized. Churches were planted. Why? Because one man had enough faith and dared to step out to cast a great vision. Could you be that one in this day? Could you be that one in our culture, in our age, in our generation? Oh, I pray so. Not only do what needs to be done, but do not miss great opportunities by being so absorbed and consumed with self. Jonathan says to the armor bearer, hey, let's go. Our God can do it. He is not limited in what he can do when it comes to bringing revival and seeing people saved. Well, let's look at one more timeless truth here. You see, I love this little principle. We find it in the story. Here is the principle. You see, what we do, we do together. What we do, we do together. That's a great principle of faith and of vision. Even though a man like Jeremiah Lamphere, for example, was the one who was the catalyst, and God honored that, but he always brings others around him. And that's why in verse 7, as our story continues, the armor bearer now says to him, to, to, to Jonathan, Hey, Jonathan, he says, I want you to do everything in your heart. Do what is in your heart. 
He said, turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. Don't you know that was a huge encouragement for Jonathan to know that here his friend, his armor bearer, was with him. I love one translation that says that the armor bearer says to Jonathan, I'm with you heart and soul. You see, that's the power of partnership. And let me tell you one more timeless truth that we see from a story like this where a man like Jonathan, just a young man, and his armor bearer were willing to do kind of unofficially what his father was unwilling to do when his father had all of the power and all of the title and all of the responsibility and he didn't have any authority, Jonathan didn't, but Saul didn't do it, so Jonathan said, by faith I will do it. And here's the beautiful principle here. You see, when we come together in partnership and when we step out in faith to cast a large vision, here's the beautiful thing. When big visions are accomplished God's way, then only He can get the credit. And really the word credit should be the word honor and glory. Only only God can get the glory when something happens that is so large and so massive and so huge and so incredible that there's no way humanly possible that we could have done it in the flesh. I ask you individually, but I also ask you collectively as a family of faith here at First Baptist Rock Hill, what are you attempting today for God that is so big that if it takes place, only He can get the credit for it, only get the glory for it? Maybe it's that lost coworker. Maybe you think to yourself, oh, Brother Gary, you, 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 don't, you don't know this guy, this lady that I work with. There's no way they could ever come to Christ. Well, on the surface that may be true. But remember there's another biblical principle associated with the, with the incarnation story. With us it may seem to be impossible. With God all things are possible. All things are possible. And so big visions accomplished God's way will mean that he and he alone can get the credit for it. Now, the, the, I want to just take two minutes, literally, and I'm finished with the message this morning because the, one of the questions that has been asked of me very regularly since I've come, uh, really beginning the job in, in, in the middle of February, is well, what's your vision for the state of South Carolina and our South Carolina Baptist Convention? And so I, I've really prayed a lot about that. I just shared this with the staff just literally a few weeks ago, and I'm wanting to share it as I have opportunity around this state And I've kind of boiled it down to the three statements, a vision statement, a mission statement, and a purpose statement. I'm going to give them to you, and I'm sure your church has a mission statement and a vision statement and hopefully some kind of uh, purpose statement or whatever most churches do. But let me give you the South Carolina, what we can do as a convention and what God's called me here to lead. Number one, our vision statement, and here it is. God laid upon my heart that the vision of the South Carolina Baptist Convention should be that every life is saturated and transformed by the hope of the gospel beginning here in South Carolina. Right here in this room at at the listening session, someone, I don't know who they were, but they asked this question. They said, does your vision stop at the borders of South Carolina? I thought that was a great question. And and it had to be the Holy Spirit who inspired me because I didn't even have time to think about it, but I instantly blurted out and I said, oh no, my vision doesn't stop at the borders of South Carolina. It begins there. And folks, I have a passion. I have a burden. I have a vision that God has given me that 
the two billion people who live in world A and who have no access to the gospel. You know, I don't know how many churches I passed between Blythewood where I live and right here in Rock Hill today, but I guarantee it was a bunch of them. We at least have access to the gospel. We have over two billion people who live on this planet who this very morning have never heard the name of Jesus and have no access to the gospel that we take so much for granted, quite frankly. I believe our convention should be driven by that kind of vision that we will not rest. We will not stop working and giving and going and praying and serving and doing everything we can until every life is saturated by the and then ultimately transformed by the hope of the gospel. And we're going to start right here in South Carolina. We have a mission statement. We have two what we're calling essential catalysts and then four primary things that we are going to stay focused on. Here's the statement. It's a little wordy, but here it is. Utilizing the essential catalyst of prayer and leadership. And by leadership, I mean spiritual leadership, transformative leadership, the kind of leadership that Jesus exercised, which, by the way, is selfless, not selfish leadership. But utilizing those catalysts of prayer and leadership, our mission is to help every church in South Carolina multiply disciples by doing these four things, sharing hope, that's evangelism, starting new churches. You heard Pastor Steve mention that I had some experience in that. We call that, again, uh, uh, strengthening churches, rather. That's church help. Starting churches, that's church planting, planting new churches, and ultimately doing what you're already doing, sending missionaries, missions mobilization. That's the mission that we have at South Carolina Baptist. And here's the beautiful thing. You're a part of it through your giving through the corporate program. Never think that you give to the corporate program. You give through the corporate program. Every dollar that you give here at First Baptist Church, I know a portion of that comes to our state convention initially, but we pass it on to our international mission board, to our North American mission board, to all of our ministry partners right here in the state with the hope that lost people, more lost people, will hear the gospel and be saved and that more saved people who already have the gospel will grow and mature as healthy, multiplying disciples. That's our mission, staying focused on those four things driven by those catalysts of prayer and leadership. And ultimately, it was boiled down to this. And our staff, even this Wednesday, I have a little time with our staff uh, talking about some structural changes that we're making, and we're making them for this reason to stay more focused on our purpose. The purpose of our South Carolina Baptist Convention is very simple, and it is this, to help churches fulfill the Great Commission. We only exist so that we can help churches like First Baptist Church Rock Hill. Now, you may not need help, and you probably don't need a lot of help, but uh, because you're very strong, you're very healthy, very vibrant ministry, but of our 2,136 churches in South Carolina, listen to this, 80% of them are declined, or are plateaued, or declining. And we're doing some research right now, and it breaks my heart to think that nearly half of our churches, nearly half of our South Carolina Baptist churches, didn't baptize anyone, not even one person, last year. Now, I, I, don't, I don't say that to cast a stone at that pastor or that church or that ministry, but it may just simply need means that they need a little help. They need a little encouragement. They need some resources. They need some assistance, and that's where we come in. And so I'm so grateful for pastors like your pastor who believe in the power of partnership and who believe that we can do so much more together than we can ever do by ourselves. So Rock Hill First Baptist, thank you. 
for being a part of this partnership that we call the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And at the larger level, our Southern Baptist Convention. But if you've not plugged into a church this morning, you're not a part of any fellowship of faith.